Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, as we continue our study through the gospel of Mark. Mark is intending to show us what we just sang, the glorious Christ, and have our view of Christ begin to shape who we are and how we think. Each of these little paragraphs is uniquely placed by the human author, Mark, and the Spirit of God who was directing him, who was inspiring him to show us the greatness of Christ in such a way that we cannot and should not be different from what we see and what we've heard from this evangelist. Mark chapter 3, and we come to what's called an interlude. And this section in verses 7 to 12 it does two things. It's a hinge paragraph. It looks back and it's a summary of what we've studied so far in Mark. And it also is an introduction into what's going to follow. Mark chapter 3 verse 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea or the lake with his disciples. And a great multitude from Galilee followed. And also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not overwhelm him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. The Holy Bible that most of you are holding is made up of different genres of literature. In the wisdom of the Spirit of God, he inspired a multitude of genres in order to communicate his word. If you were to try to stitch these different genres and these different books of the Bible together without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't make any sense. How can all of these unique features of these unique genres come together in a unified whole as the word of the living God? Now, if you pay attention, you'll find poetry in the Bible, letters, proverbs, Parables, philosophy, theology, constitutional regulations, apocalyptic prophecy, even orations and sermons and speeches. Every type of literature and style is found on the pages of the Bible. Now, when you line up these genres or these types of literature in the Bible in comparison, you may be surprised when you see how much of each kind of literature, each genre of literature appears on the pages of Scripture, that there's a predominant genre. There's one genre that supersedes all of the others. And that genre is called historical narrative. In other words, it tells the history of something that happened or a 
time that happened or to people that lived. Think about it. Genesis through Deuteronomy is called the law. There's no laws in Genesis. It's historical narrative. Much of Exodus is historical narrative. Leviticus has a lot of narrative. Remember Nadab and Abihu? Numbers is predominantly narrative of what happened as they were wandering around. And Deuteronomy is the retelling of the law with narrative in between the sections of the law. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, historical narrative. First and second Samuel, historical narrative. First and second Kings, historical narrative. First and second Chronicles, historical narrative. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and much of Job is historical narrative. Large sections of the prophetical books are recounting the history and the narrative of what happened in the nation of Israel and with their interaction with the surrounding nations. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts are, you guessed it, historical narrative. And you know what? That makes sense if you think about it. In the wisdom of God, before people had Bibles, remember until about 200 years ago, no one could really have their own, very few people I should say, could have their own Bible. And those who had copies of the scriptures back in the days of, of the apostles would have had to carry around some 60 scrolls or so. So how would the genius of the Spirit of God design his revelation in such a way that people could and would remember it? Answer, through stories. I was just uh, walking around in the children's uh, department uh, downstairs uh, during the Sunday school hour and was lassoed into a couple of, uh, of the classrooms. And you know what they were doing? They were telling stories from the Bible. It's genius of God that you would remember the story and then be able to make the theological connections and the practical implications from those stories. This incredible volume of literature compels us. It demands us to know and understand how should we interpret historical narrative. We, we all come to the Bible and want to know what to do. So the question is, how do you get prescription, what we're to do, out of description of just a description of what happened? You understand the question? So if you're reading in these pages of Mark, this is what happened, so what? We have to have a hermeneutical and an applicational and implicational grid for what to do with these stories. And the Bible provides that for us. In 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Paul says, these things, looking at the Old Testament, happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Five verses later in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. In other words, Paul is telling the Corinthians, when you look to the Old Testament, yes, you see the theology of God. Yes, you see the character of God. Yes, you see all that God has done, but he also provided examples to imitate and examples to avoid. Romans 15, 4, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So when we have historical narrative, which the gospel of Mark is, 
We have a blueprint. We're given a blueprint. Part of the reason we're given these stories is to find examples and instruction. This is how to live and this is how not to live. And we looked at that last week with the Pharisees, right? Here's Jesus. Imitate him, Paul says. Here's the Pharisees. These are examples of patterns that we want to avoid. We're also to find instruction. How do we live in a way that pleases God? That's what we're told. But the connective tissue of all the Bible are the ways of God. What God is like and how God interacts with this world. We call the Bible the what of God, the revelation, the revealing of God. So we might expect when we open, we should expect when we open the pages of Scripture to see what God is like. Exodus thirty-three, thirteen. Moses says, I pray you, Lord, if I found grace or favor in your sight, listen, teach me to know your ways so that I may come to know you. That's a great hermeneutic for looking at historical narrative. These are the ways of God, how he operates in providence and throughout history. This means looking at and learning about the ways of God The acts of God in human history is at the forefront of all historical narrative. Said another way, the main character of the Bible is God. Now, both of these purposes come together when we study the gospel. These are things that we should imitate. These are also uh, people that we should imitate. These are also people we should avoid in their example. And all the while learning the ways of God in the great God-man, fully God, truly man, the Lord Jesus. Nowhere do we see more clearly how God acts and speaks than we do in reading the Gospels of Jesus. We see God as a man. We see God in human flesh, interacting with people, dealing with Drama and trauma. And nowhere do we see it better, the right and wrong ways to respond to the ways of God better than we do in the Gospels. Historical narrative then, the telling of historical events, is intended by God through these authors to inform and excite our sanctified imaginations. When Mark wrote these stories, when Mark wrote these vignettes, he intended for us to visit them with our imagination and come away with the right revelation. So paying close attention to the details of the narratives about our Savior is critically important. That's frankly why we're doing what we're doing and taking painstaking detail and walking through every paragraph of Mark. Paul warned the Corinthians that false teachers would infiltrate the church then and now. And they would infiltrate, infiltrate the church primarily through teaching what he calls in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians rather, 11, 4, another Jesus and a different gospel. In other words, using the term Jesus and gospel and redefining who Jesus is and misunderstanding what means to be saved. That's why we're going with slow and deliberate detail and seeing what Mark says. Now that's important and and, and I took that little aside to explain to you why we do what we do when we're studying historical narratives, specifically the gospel of Mark. 
These verses before us that I just read represent that interlude, that summary and that introduction. Mark widens the angle out. He, he brings the camera way back and looks at the general summary and description of Jesus' ministry. And by the time he's writing this gospel, Jesus has ascended to heaven and talk of him has gained lots of traction in the Roman world and he's trying to correct and inform us so that we have the right understanding of Jesus. And listen, friends, left to our own imagination without the corrective of scripture, we will all invent another Jesus and a different gospel. How did Jesus get so popular? What kind of authority and power and ability did he display? These were the rumors that were going around that Mark sought to correct and inform when he wrote these pages. Now, here where we are this morning, he uses these six verses to give us some macro perspective. Let's go through them, and as we do, I think we'll, we'll discover together two unique features of Jesus' soaring reputation. Two unique features of Jesus' soaring reputation. Lots of famous people during Jesus' life. Lots of famous people during Jesus' time. Even John the Baptist, his cousin, was quite famous. But Jesus' reputation at this point begins to soar, and he's going to show us the extent of his reputation and how far and wide people were hearing about him. The first unique feature of Jesus' soaring reputation is in verses 7 to 10. It was unrivaled popularity. Unrivaled popularity. Verse 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea, literally the lake, Lake Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, with his disciples. And a great multitude, a massive crowd from Galilee and parts beyond that we'll see in a moment followed. After a series of events, Jesus is now a popular man and Jesus is now a wanted man. Remember verse 6? The Herodians and the Pharisees now are conspiring together. They'll bring the Sadducees and the scribes in with them soon and conspiring on how they might destroy, murder Jesus from Nazareth. But he's also becoming a bit of a novelty to the crowd. He was healing people and forgiving people, performing miracles. This first phrase in verse 7 is important to connect the conspiracy concocted in verse 6. They're after him, and he wants to get a retreat with his disciples, as we'll see in a couple chapters when they, they retreat to Caesarea Philippi. He wants to get them away so he can instruct them without a massive crowd around interrupting him. Why is he withdrawing to the lake? Why is he withdrawing? Is, is he running from the resistors? No, no, no. He will confront these resistors soon. He's looking for a time and a place to instruct his disciples. Think about this. Every building he went in was a physical trap. When he went to the synagogue, when he went into Peter's house, we've already said he goes in there and the crowds line up at every entrance, every window. Sometimes they can't get to him, so they, they climb on top of a roof and dig a hole in the roof. Every building he went into was a trap, physical cul-de-sac. And Mark tells us a great multitude, literally a massive crowd, 
an uncountable number of people were following him. Mark takes this opportunity, by the way, just in this interlude, to inform us how far-reaching Jesus' influence had now stretched. He sparred with the Pharisees four different times, beginning in chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. And at that first conflict, uh, after he healed the paralyzed man, but he also verbally, publicly, spiritually forgave the man's sin, to which they said, only God can forgive sin, therefore you're guilty of, remember what they said, blasphemy. So it's important to remember that the time for Jesus to full on confront the religious authorities is not now because when he does, it'll be in Jerusalem and to thank him for that confrontation, they will nail him to the cross. So he sets up a retreat. He wants to get away to the shore of the lake with his disciples. Who are his disciples? This is a stuff for, for us Bible geeks that is a lot of fun. Which disciples? Why would you ask which disciples? Look at the next paragraph. He appoints the 12 disciples in the next paragraph. So who are these disciples that he, he pulls aside to the lake with him? Well, Mark has already told us that Simon, Andrew, James, and John, and Matthew have accepted the call to be Jesus' disciples. This is chapter 1, verse 16 to 20, and chapter 2, verse 13, verse 14. And when you line up the chronology with the gospel of John in chapter 1, verses 35 to 51, probably Philip and Nathaniel were also a part of the group as well by now. But it's likely, since so many of the crowd were following him, that these other men who would be one of the 12 were likely there as well. Now Mark looks at the crowd and he makes some really interesting observations. From men, men from Galilee followed him. Why is that important? Well, that's local. That's around the Sea of Galilee. These were the locals who lived around the lake, the first to see and hear Jesus, and they were the ones hounding and pounding on the door to see him and to be healed. They were also the first ones who would have taken his reputation and spread it to the surrounding regions. He says, and also at the end of verse seven and the beginning of verse eight, from Judea and from Jerusalem. This is like the county and the city. This is important because it was the seat of Jewish leadership and Jewish power and the fact that the reputation of this miracle worker from Nazareth has made it all the way to Jerusalem, soliciting them to send messengers and spies to trap Jesus is remarkable. Oh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and the scribes would all begin, who didn't like each other very much, would all begin to get on the same page. You can imagine the rumors that are spreading around Jerusalem about Jesus. There's this man up around the Sea of Galilee, and he's healing people with diseases. diseases. He's actually taking withered hands and paralyzed limbs, giving them full health. And you're not going to believe this. He actually told a man he was forgiven of his sin, just like God does. From Idumea, 120 miles to the south, from beyond the Jordan, this is the Transjordan region, points east of the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, that's 50 miles north. A great number of people heard of all he was doing and followed him. They came to him. Let's pull this together. 
It's important to note how ethnically diverse is the crowd Jesus has attracted. You know, there's so much talk these days in contemporary evangelicalism about racial reconciliation and the races getting together, and, and, and we should because of the gospel. Jesus never put that as the icebreaker of the front of his message. When he preached and forgave sins, people from all ethnicities came to him. Those from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem were from predominantly Jewish areas. Those from Idumea and the areas east of the Jordan were called the Transjordan area, by the way, was an area mixed with Jewish and Gentile people. Remember, Herod was an Idumean, which was, means a mixed Jewish and Gentile man. Tyre and Sidon were almost entirely Gentile. All of these people, Jews and Gentiles, the mixed breeds, everyone and anyone came to see Jesus. The range of his influence was far broader than his cousins, John the Baptist. Look back in chapter one for a moment, verse five, talking about John the Baptist. All the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing sins. He had a localized ministry down around Jerusalem. Jesus' ministry is far, far broader. It was expanding north and south at a rapid clip. Verse nine. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready. Literally a small boat, by the way. There are words for big boats and small boats. This is just a little boat. Would stand ready for him because of the crowd. So he goes to the lake. He wants a boat ready because of the crowd. So that they would not... This is an interesting Greek word. Crowd him is what the NAS says. Thlebane in the Greek. It literally means to mob, accost, fall upon, crush, and pressure. Why? He had healed many. With the result that all those who needed to be healed with afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Now, can we just stop for a minute and think about our own imaginations? It's too easy for us to think of Jesus here in Galilee like he is presented in some of those movies. A folksy kind of scene with a sweet musical interlude, classical music in the background. Jesus is surrounded by little children with curious eyes. Lambs are laying around on the grass like pets. People are sitting in orderly niceness and, niceness and silent reverence. Just teach us something, Lord. That is not the scene in reality. You ever tried to get into a store early in the morning on Black Friday where a massive sale is and you want to get something before someone else gets it for you? That's the picture. Better yet, it's like the paparazzi stalking a star who has trouble making it from the car to the front door. That's what's happening here. They're literally physically pressing on him so that his mind is, if I want to have the opportunity to teach, if I want to have the opportunity to even get away and I'm not physically crushed, I might have to get in a boat and get out from the shoreways so people would have to swim to me. It's incredible. 
James Edwards comments, the crowd here is a paradox. It needs command Jesus' attention, and Jesus is fully attentive to the misery present in its numbers, but its clamor, listen, is not a response of faith. The crowd is now to the point where they are no longer bringing the sick and lame to have Jesus touch and heal them. They're now following Jesus, wanting to get close enough and force their way to the crowd, as we'll see in just a few chapters, and just touch him, and they'll be healed. The text tells us that everyone who had something to be fixed physically went to him. Now, honestly, wouldn't you? No orthopedic surgeons, if you broke your leg... And it was a compound fracture. They would try to straighten it as much as they could, but you are now paralyzed the rest of your life. Same thing with any broken bone. No antibiotics. If you're sick or weak or dying or with a fever, we'll find out later a woman with a hemorrhage. No way to get it fixed. And then you find out there's a man And if you can get to this man, he can make you whole and heal you. It's not hard to understand why these crowds were thronging to him. No way to outrun the crowd, but if needed, he could outrow them or outsail them. So he says, have a boat ready. Now, it's going to become clearer throughout our study of Mark that the crowds were opportunistic and Selfish, basically, about Jesus. He could heal, cast out demons, perform miracles. And later in Mark, he'll, he'll twice feed thousands of people. Can you imagine wanting to be around a man who could heal all your diseases and make food? I would vote for that guy, wouldn't you? And so would they. The end of verse 10 says, the result of this healing ministry is everyone who needed to be healed came in the crowd to Jesus. Honestly, can you blame them? But as Edward says, this is not the response of faith. This is the response of selfish gain from the power of the Nazarene. Now, just a little footnote here. Do you ever share? Can you find in the crowd any parts of their mindset where you share their selfishness? Seeking Jesus for what he can provide? Does your prayer life extend at a a faster and more frequent clip when there's a problem and you need his help? Or when everything is going well? and you don't sense any need? Does Jesus become a Mr. Fix-It for you? A spiritual handyman? Even the great physician, when we pray more about our physical needs than our spiritual ones when we have and experience suffering? Are you ever curious about Jesus without submission to his lordship? Here's a good way to check what, what comprises your, your prayer requests? 
I was thinking about this in my own heart. What, what do I pray for? Because how you pray and what you pray for reveals very quickly how you view God and his son, the Lord Jesus. How much do those requests reflect what God can do for us to make our lives better rather than what we can do to glorify his greatness? Now, footnote, if we have any anxiety or any problem, Paul tells us to bring all of our requests to God. We should bring everything to him. This is just a great place to check our motives on those requests. Yes, we should and could pray about any possible request in our life. We just have to see in this crowd how easy it is to want to leverage Jesus for our advantage rather than to worship him because of his identity. Think of the paparazzi. Think of the people hounding him. Can you imagine waking up in the morning in Peter's house or wherever he was staying? Walking outside and there are hundreds of people with stretchers, and bandages, please help. Unrivaled popularity, and we can see why, because of his ability and his deity. Which leads us, number two, to unprecedented power. This is the second unique feature of Jesus' soaring reputation. Why is he so popular? Secondly, unprecedented power. Not only unrivaled popularity, but unprecedented power. Verses 11 and 12. Verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits, these are the demons, saw him, presumably when they were in possession of a person, as we'll see later in Mark, they would fall down before him and shout... You are the son of God. Interesting play on words here in the Greek. The crowds are said to fall upon Jesus and the evil spirits fall before Jesus. In the early part of his ministry, the first people, the first entities, the first beings to recognize the true identity of Jesus are the demons. Oh, the disciples will begin to learn, but as we'll see, their learning is slow and sometimes three steps forward and two steps back. They fell before him, prostrate. It occurs eight times in the New Testament. It paints the picture of an inferior person prostrating themselves in homage on their knees with their face to the ground before a superior being. And these evil spirits had a common response. They said to him, we know who you are. They may not, but we know exactly who you are. You are the son of God. You remember that's how Mark introduced Jesus, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. But turn over to chapter 15, verse 39. I want you to see the end of his life. Chapter 15, verse 39. This is an important connection to make. 
Jesus is on the cross. He has been suffering immensely. The centurion, the Roman guards who were there were watching the people and watching him. Their job was to make sure he was dead. They were the executioners. There's a centurion who was standing right in front of him, verse 39, Mark 15. And when he saw the way he breathed his last, he said, the centurion, truly, this man was the son of God. This Roman Gentile, seeing the way Jesus died, led him to the conclusion that he was no mere man, but his father was in heaven. So far, back to Mark 3, the demons are the only beings to confess Jesus' divine sonship. Chapter 1, verse 24, 3, 11. They'll do so again in 5, 7. Notice they confess the divine sonship of Jesus in the presence of the disciples. Now, now just put yourself in their sandals for a minute, okay? You're curious, you're following. Some of these men have already been called by Jesus. Some are about to be called by Jesus and demon-possessed people, with a demon obviously speaking, say about him, you are the son of God. It wasn't the disciples making this affirmation. They were still learning. It was the demons here in the beginning. By the way, notice that Jesus' authority over the demonic realm is absolute, Demonic forces are always subject to his sovereignty, his authority, and his word. Verse 12, he earnestly, that means compellingly, seriously, sternly, warned them. There was more than one. There were multiple of these demons and demon-possessed people who were making this affirmation about Jesus. Not to tell who he was. Why? Well, some have said, well, because he didn't want the demons to be his first witnesses. I mean, maybe. But the text actually tells us why. This is the, uh, we looked at this earlier in Mark. It's called the secrecy motif. Remember that? The command to secrecy, the command to silence. Now, Jesus is going to do this to demons when they affirm who he is. And he's going to do this to people where he, provide, he uh, performs private miracles and he's gonna tell them, don't tell anybody. Why? Isn't that why he came? Let's make a few observations to understand this phenomenon called the secrecy motif in the gospels. First, it matters who Jesus tells the command to be silent to. Think about this. When he commands the demons to keep quiet, one verse, chapter 1, verse 25, verse 34, chapter 3, here verses 11 and 12. When he commands the demons to be quiet, get this, they always obey. 100% of the time. Now, we'll see when he hires the, heals the, cast out the demon from the garrison demoniac, he tells him to go say something. 
When he commands the beneficiaries of miracles not to tell anyone, they usually disobey. They usually can't wait to tell someone what happened. Secondly, if you look closely at these commands to secrecy, you find that the commands about his identity are obeyed while the commands to keep quiet about something he did is not obeyed. A third observation is there is purpose that Jesus provides that makes perfect sense, especially in light of the passage we're looking at today with the crowds pressing in on him. Jesus was well aware that his miracles could lead people to a mistaken conclusion or conclusions about his lordship. Turn over to Mark chapter 9. We'll get here in due time. He's gone up to this retreat in Caesarea Philippi and he shows the disciples who he is. Remember the transfiguration. He's transformed and transfigured in front of them. They see that he is the son of God. They see his glory, a glimpse of his majesty and his glory, the brilliant light that would have emanated from his person. As they were coming down, Mark 9, 9, from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until, here it is, the son of man rose from the dead. What are we deduced by that? Until he was crucified, buried, confirmed dead, rose from the grave, until the gospel story was complete, anything they would say about him was incomplete. By the way, when he, healed, when he forgives sin like he did in Mark 2, he never tells someone who he's forgiven for their sins, don't tell anyone. <laughs> it's just the miraculous on the physical level. The point of the secrecy motif is to let people know that his purpose was larger than simply healing and doing miracles and casting out demons. It was to accomplish redemption for those who would believe. Now, that's a good place to pull over for a minute. Have you come to the right conclusion about the Son of God? Do you understand his good news that he came from heaven, that he became a man, the second person of the Trinity became a man so that he could die in our place. Think about this. He became human so he could die as a substitute for the sins of those who believe in his good news. Have you come to a place where that's a personal relationship with him as Savior and as Lord, or do you find yourself in the crowd? Oh, you like his church, you like these people. It's a social alternative to the world. Or do you really understand the need that everyone has for personal forgiveness, like that paralytic in chapter two? Sure, he had physical needs, but Jesus drove straight to his pressing need. You need forgiveness for your sins. And he offered that only through believing in him. Jesus is not just a Mr. Fix-It. He's not just a spiritual repairman. He's not a handyman for your problems and our diseases. He is the Lord and the Savior and offers eternal salvation and redemption. If you'll believe, what would keep you from believing. We say it like this. What kind of fool would say no to the forgiveness of sins and hope for eternal life? 
Interestingly, Mark sets up demons as Jesus' supernatural opponents and the first to confess him as the Son of God. And their confession wasn't out of faith that leads to salvation. Their confession was out of identity that would lead to judgment. So we have historical narrative. What do we do with this? How do we respond to this that just happened? Can I give you some bullet points just to noodle on? Maybe these are things you can talk about. These are what I sensed impressed on my own soul for takeaways. Are you self-aware of how you perceive Jesus? Now think about that. That's getting outside of yourself and looking at your own perspective. Are you self-aware of your awareness of Jesus? Do you see how you see Jesus? If you were to look at your own faith, could you evaluate the leaks, the deficiencies? Could you also build on the worship, on the right recognition leads to another question. Do you understand the danger of perceiving Jesus as a novelty? You know, it's too easy to say, oh, that was them. We would never do that. Except when we look at our prayers and they're predominantly about self-help rather than his purposes and his glory and his kingdom come, his will be done by us. It's Listen, our culture looks to Jesus way more as a means to an end than the end himself. Similarly, a third question, can you distinguish the curious crowd from a following disciple? Can you distinguish the curious crowd from, the follow, from a following disciple? Now, that's looking at the crowd, but that's also looking at our own hearts. Curiosity is not submission. Interest is not lordship. The crowd was curious. The crowd was demanding. The crowd wanted to be fixed. And listen, again, wouldn't you? Jesus' message as he commanded this secrecy motif, his message was not going to be complete until after the resurrection It wasn't just that he could heal and feed. It was he could forgive and rule. This is what impressed me about looking at these final two verses. How does the power of the Son of God influence your moment-by-moment thinking? And what I mean by that is these, these demons demon-possessed people had an instant response to who Jesus was and an instant obedience to what he said and looking at our own recognition and submission. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be outdone by demons. He was powerful because he was God. He remains powerful because he's alive and is God. And he invites his children to seek him for what we need and we should. But it's important to allow him to define the needs. 
not our own selfish desires. It's ever more important to seek him out of adoration and wonder and worship and love, not just utilitarian purposes. Now, can we just kind of sit together and have a, have a care group for a minute? Not some of us, but all of us. All of us know that if we look into the recesses of our own heart, it is way easier to come to Jesus, come to God through his son for utilitarian reasons than it is for worship. But he grants forgiveness. He grants mercy. He grants enablement. He grants power for us to change selfish seeking into adoring worship. And don't forget, we should pray to him about everything. In all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to him. I think this is a great place in looking at this crowd to see if their desire is in any way reflected in our view of the Lord. So where are you? You have groups of people in this text. Curious crowd. Following disciples. Affirming demons. Where are you? Where, where do you see your response to the living, resurrected Savior? If you don't know him, what a great day you've come when we see Mark presenting such an amazing Savior. I want to encourage you not to leave without addressing the need of your soul to understand that you are incurably sinful, never good enough to work your way to heaven. And only his goodness and righteousness can be given to you because you believe in who Jesus is and in what he's done. You believe that he was crucified in your place for sin and that he rose from being dead and offers us hope for everlasting happiness with him because everyone will be resurrected either in hell or to the glories of heaven. I want to beg you and encourage you, don't leave without addressing the greatest need of your soul.